Welcome to the Redeemer Podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. We hope you enjoy the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. Amen. It's good to see you. Please take your Bibles and go to James chapter 4. We continue in our series in the book of James. Every week now, James reminds us of a vital but yet often overlooked reality of Christianity, that Christianity is a visible faith. It's a displayed reality. It's not just something that we internalize, something that we just agree with, but something that we believe, and that once we believe that Christ has been raised from the dead for our sins, then this is now lived out in us. Christianity is not just believed, it's also lived, first believed, and then lived as we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. And that's really what James is all about. And today in James 4, James takes us to a turning point, a a breakthrough, really. And this is a breakthrough that in our lives, this is something every one of us needs. Some of us may need it more significantly than others. Some of us may need it and we are totally unaware of it. Some of us know we need it. But hopefully by the Holy Spirit, not only will he make you aware of this breakthrough that's needed, but that he will grant it to us by the power of the blood of Christ. We need a surging forward together in the grace of God. Every single one of us individually, And all of us together as the body of Christ at Redeemer Church, we need a surging forward together in the grace of God. That's the title of the sermon and I think the theme of James chapter 4, which we'll read now. And as we do every week, if you're able, let's stand together in honor of the reading of the word of Christ, beginning in verse 1. And the Spirit says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. 
The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray together. Holy Father, help us. My simple request every week as we gather together with your word open to us is that you would help us. So would you send your spirit now and power as we look upon your word. By the power of your risen son, would you help us, Father? Would you give us ears to hear what it is the spirit is saying to your church? Would you help us to surge forward together in grace? So would you give us more grace now? Would you help us to feel your grace and experience your grace and, and thrive together in the grace that's given to us in Christ? And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When you see, and I don't know if you're a parent, you, you know this, that when you see kids fighting, your own children, or you hear something, a skirmish going on in another room, and you go in there, one of the first questions that's always asked is what? What happened? Why is he crying? Why are you not crying? How did this break? What happened? And when it happens among adults, when it happens in local churches, conflict, skirmish, when I sit in a counseling room with a marriage that's on the brink of divorce, when, when you are counseling a friend, the same question gets asked, what happened? What brought us to this point? James pinpoints another problem that's really all too common in local churches. And that's really hindering us from surging together in the grace of Christ. It's verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Bickering. This word quarrel could be translated war. What causes these things? James peels back the conflict for us and shows us. This is really the first point I think that hinders us from surging forward together is conflict in community. Look at verse 1 again. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Now, these quarrels and fights, these words, they can be something like a five-alarm conflict, a, a near-church split, or it can even be just a low-grade fever of unkindness and, and cold-shouldering and, and, and distancing from others. Both are ungodly. The intensity is irrelevant. It's the presence of it that is ungodly. And both betray the gospel of reconciliation. If we claim to believe in a gospel of reconciliation, that God reconciles God and man in Christ, then we must also believe and not betray the reality that in that gospel of reconciliation, that God has also reconciled us to one another. And God has given us the clear channels and pathways to have reconciliation with one another in the blood of Christ. This is why James wants to address unity in the church and relationships among believers. What causes quarrels and fights among us? We could point to things. Politics. I heard they were a Democrat. I heard they were a Republican. Preferences and opinions. Parenting styles. Schooling choices. We could talk about a dozen things that, would, that could cause quarrels and fights among us, but that's, that's not what James goes to. 
And by God's grace, right now, I, me and the other elders, we talk about our church. We, we feel like we're in a wonderful season of unity. And that's why we should pay attention to this passage all the more. Because it could strike on us if we don't heed and pay attention to God's word. So let's pay very close attention to what God is warning us about in James 4. So why do churches experience conflict? Why do believers get rifts in their relationships? James tells the second half of verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? These internal passions and pleasures, they're, they're in a civil war among us. This Greek word for passions is eventually where we get the English word hedonism, this kind of unbridled pursuit of whatever you want. And James has pinpointed the problem in our conflicts. There's a mutiny going on inside of us. Your pleasure center, that place that seeks happiness and joy, it's divided. And look at how he diagnoses this conflict even more. Verse 2, you desire and do not have so you murder. Your desires aren't met, so you murder. Some commentators think James is being literal, given some of the rough background of some of the early Christians. You remember one of the first disciples was Simon the Zealot, a man who was committed before committing his life to Christ, committed to seeing the Roman Empire overthrown. He's a violent man. So some guys think this, is, this might be literal. Whether it is literal or not, we know for sure James is piggybacking off of what Jesus says. You angry? Are you angry at your brother? You've murdered him. When, when you ignore someone because you, your desires weren't met, your, you desire and do not have, so you murder. So you're angry. James says, let's go before. Let's go even further. Why are you angry? When you ignore someone, you avoid them, you've ceased communicating with them, you're giving someone the cold shoulder. What is that? It's saying, you're dead to me. I don't even acknowledge your existence. When you ignore someone, you give someone the cold shoulder. When you pass by someone in the hallway, you don't acknowledge them, and you're doing it on purpose, and you know it, and you I should say something. Nope, I'm mad at them. You're saying, you might as well be dead, because I don't see you. You are dead to me, and this is deadly. This is deadly in the life of a Christian. James is showing us what happens before the anger. Your desires weren't met. You had unmet expectations. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that phrase in Christian counseling, Christian discipleship, talking about, especially with premarital counseling. Hey, you know, one of the chief areas of conflict is unmet expectations. And so our counsel after that is usually we say, so just get all your expectations out there. That doesn't guarantee you're not going to have conflict still. I told her. I can't believe it. I told him. He's not putting his socks in the ball like, he's, like I put out in the laundry. Just because you make your expectations no, now doesn't give you license to get angry when they aren't met. As though we aren't meant to give grace to one another, be patient with one another, kind and tenderhearted towards one another in Christ. But these unmet expectations are still a spark for all kinds of quarrels, and we must watch them. Look at what he says next. You covet. You went from desire to covet. Went from, man, I kind of like that. Ah, I didn't get it. Oh, I'm angry. Two, I want that now. 
you covet and can't get it, cannot obtain. So you fight and, and you quarrel. You want what someone else has and you don't get it. You wanted that job. You wanted that promotion. You wanted to fill in the blank and you didn't get it. So you go to war. And I want us to notice a very often repeated word in these first two verses. And we got to see this word because we still think that in our quarrels and in our fights that we're quick to blame the other person. That's what they did, what they said, what they didn't do, they said they were going to do, what they should have said but didn't. But what word does James highlight? Let's see it. Verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Isn't that this? That your passions are war within you? You desire and do not have. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You. James is grabbing us by the cheek and going, it's you, matters. It's not them. It's you. It takes two to fight. Well, they started it. They said, no, no, no. James says, you. You are the culprit in your conflict. Remember what James says in James chapter 1? Each person is lured and enticed by his own desires. No one makes a sin. Oh, they made me so angry. No, no, no. You were enticed and lured by your own desire. You did not obtain. Your expectations weren't met, so you go to war. You might be thinking, well, what am I supposed to do? They said that to me. What, am I supposed to turn the other cheek or something? It's like there's a verse about that somewhere. Bless those who persecute you, the Lord says. Turn the other cheek. Bless those who insult you. Bless those who curse you. I remember last week's verse, the end of James chapter 3, the wisdom from above is peaceable. It doesn't incite conflict. It tries to incite peace. And this isn't easy. This isn't meant to be easy. The idea that the Christian life is easy is heretical. It is challenging. That's why Jesus says, count the cost if you're going to come follow me. That's why it's pick up your cross. Pick up your death device when you come and follow me. This is why people leave Jesus in droves. All throughout the Gospels, when Jesus says hard things like this, when he says, bless those who persecute you, people go, mm, I don't want that. And Jesus looks at the disciples. You guys going to leave too? What does Peter say? No. Where else are we going to go? You, you have the words of eternal life. And they tell him, Lord, that was a hard thing you said. How are, how are people going to get to heaven by what you just said? With man, all things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. This is why we have, we must not forget that we have a Savior empowering us who stood there on trial with soldiers hitting him, mocking him, spitting on him, ripping out his beard, blaspheming him from the cross. And Jesus says, here I am to empower you for your whole life. Are we going to go to war with one another because our expectations weren't met? Because our unmet preferences, unmet opinions, unmet wants and desires. Listen to what James says about these unmet wants and desires. Here's, here's maybe why we're, we don't even get them. Look at the end of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. Have you ever stopped to think, are you asking God? 
You don't have it because you don't ask. You haven't been asking God for it. I hope you've noticed by now, if you've been with us throughout the whole book of James, James is really kind of riffing and jazzcatting all from the Sermon on the Mount. He's beep-bopping all over the place from what Jesus has already taught us. What did our Lord say in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. The one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you? If a son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or which one of you, if your son asks for fish, will you give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I love that line from Christ. When when your kid asks for milk this afternoon, you're not going to give him battery acid. When your child asks for a toy at Target, you're not going to go pick up some barbed wire. What's Jesus saying? You know how to give good things to your children, and you are evil. (laughs) Did you catch what he called us? You are unholy, and you know how to give good things to your your children. So how much more do you think our good Father in heaven is willing to give to those who ask him? Jesus says, if you can be good to your kids, imagine what our Father is like. Jesus says, and James agree, our problem is not coveting. Our problem is prayerlessness. And even deeper, our problem is a functional atheism. We don't have because we live as functional atheists. We agree with God's there for our salvation, but for our daily lives, we still operate like he is dead. Are you asking God? Really asking God. More than the ceremonial, God, would you give me this? But an actual pleading with God, like the parable that Jesus gives us about the persistent widow who is pestering this judge again and again and again. And finally, Jesus says, and because he wore him down, the judge grants her request. The point is, God's not like an impersistent judge. God is our good father. Keep asking him. Prove to yourself that you really do depend on God. Thing you're desiring right now, a job, a spouse, health. James is asking you and me, are you really asking the Father about this? Maybe you don't have because you don't ask. Functional atheism is joy sapping to us believers. Functional atheism might be why you don't have what you want. But remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't say, if your kid asks for bread, you'll give him bread. He says, you won't give him a stone. He doesn't say, if your kid asks for fish, you'll give him fish. He says, you won't give him a serpent. You won't give him something hurtful, but you may not get what you're asking for. Did you catch that? You may ask for bread. You might get a tortilla. He didn't say he'll get bread. You're just not going to get a stone. So ask the Father. And no, I may not get what I'm asking for, but I'm not going to get a hurtful thing. I might get something else that he knows. And that's why Jesus says, how much more will the Father give good things to to those who ask him? So Jesus is pinpointing two things. Maybe we aren't asking, and maybe we're not asking for the right thing. Maybe we're not asking for good things. Maybe, Maybe our problem is bigger than functional atheism. What could our problem be? Look at verse 3. You ask. So maybe you're thinking, I have been asking. 
Okay, James says, you ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. We're asking, but we don't have because we ask with the wrong motive. God knows our hearts. He knows if we're asking from a selfish disposition, if we're asking from a greedy heart, if we're asking from a place of not loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and a place to love our neighbor as ourselves, but as a place just to love us. And this is God's scathing rebuke to us, verses four through five. Let's hear him again. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy with God. So there's a functional atheism and then there's a functional, faithless, spiritual adultery against the Almighty God. This is one of the mega themes of the Old Testament prophets, spiritual adultery. It's all over them. You can barely find a page in Ezekiel that doesn't have this. And here it is in the Old Testament. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit now looking at us through the Holy Word of God saying, you adulterous people. The betrayal that a spouse feels in adultery, the queasiness that a spouse feels that wells up when unfaithfulness happens and the righteous anger, God is stepping in and verse four and saying, me too. I feel the same thing. I feel that exact same thing when my people are unfaithful to me. When we go to God in prayer, and we're trying to smuggle goodies out of him. And we don't want him. And we're thinking just about ourselves and we're not praying for others. Prayers for not for his glory, but for our own glory. God says, you're cheating on me with the world. You're praying for that lake house and you're not praying for the nations? Praying for that big raise, that big promotion, while you don't pray for your lost sibling. You told that Christian you're going to pray for them to be healed from cancer, but all you keep praying about is your sports team. God says, You're cheating on me with the world. I can smell the world on your breath. You're living all for you again. I love how Phillips, J.B. Phillips, translate verse four. He translates it as, you are like unfaithful wives, flirting with the glamour of this world and never realizing that to be the world's lover means becoming the enemy of God. Jesus tells us a parable about the seeds being tossed out onto different soils and that one of the soils hears the word of God, but listen, but the cares of the world the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and proves unfaithful. The cares of the world are what choke this seed. And Paul tells us about a man named Demas who abandoned Paul and abandoned the faith altogether. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. The cares of the world, being in love with this present world, this is why 1 John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the way the world operates, the world system, the world's goodies, 
The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And this world is passing away along with its desires. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. So God is asking you and me, what do you want? What do you want? Do you want the things of the world more than you want God? God's asking, more than me? So honestly, where are you today? Do you want what God gives more than God himself? I shared the gospel recently with this guy. We were playing basketball. And it's 4th of July. It was like noon, 200 degrees. I'm out at an outdoor court shooting by myself. And this guy pulls up and gets out. And I thought, okay, I'm definitely going to share the gospel with this guy. This is like divine appointment. Here we are. And so we start talking. And he couldn't believe that I really believe Jesus is alive. Not just as some Casper the ghost, but as a resurrected God man. Lungs kicked back on. Brainstem flared back up. And that he's alive in the heavenly places. He said, you really believe that? I said, absolutely. And we talked about grace and about forgiveness. And he said, he admitted, I need that. I need to be saved. I, I, need, I need Jesus to save me. And I said, Josh, so why not today? Well, what keeps you from believing in Jesus today? And he said the most honest thing I've probably heard ever, anyone ever say. He said, the world. The world, man. I love this world. So Josh, your love of the world sends you to hell. I don't want you to go to hell. Jesus brought me here for this, and Jesus brought you here for this. Turn to him and be saved. I love the world, man. Do you love the world more than you love God? Do you want what God gives more than God? Functional atheism and a faithless adultery, they are deadly to God's people. And listen, God is kindly calling us away from them. Look at verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously? He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Think about the way James phrases this question. Do you think the Bible says this for no reason? That he yearns jealously over you? Do you think there isn't a purpose for the Bible saying that the holy God of the universe is jealous towards his people? We would say what? Oh, no, of course the Bible doesn't say it for no reason. And James is saying, then why do you act like it? Why are you acting like it doesn't matter? There is not a wasted word. Whether you are in a functional atheism or in a faithless adultery right now, God the Father is in heaven sitting and looking and has a righteous jealousy over you. He sees you flirting with the world and he says, I'm jealous. I, I love you. I want what's best for you. Come to me. I'm positive every single one of us either at certain times or even right now, have one or the other. A functional atheism, a spiritual adultery. You might be thinking, that's me, I'm totally prayerless. I keep operating on my own strength. I keep just trying to do it all on my own. I'm a functional atheist. Or you might be thinking, my gosh, I've, I've been committing spiritual adultery against Almighty God. 
I'm at enmity with God. I've become a friend of the world, and now my God's enemy. What, what do I do? Now what? God has a way forward for us to search forward in grace. Look at verse 6. So verses 1 through 5, pile, pile up, pile up, and then verse 6 swoops in, but he gives more grace. There is not a person in this room that has exhausted or can exhaust God's grace. He gives more. There is more available to you. There is no fiscal cliff of God's grace. There is no bottom of the barrel of God's grace. An eternal God does not have a temporary amount of grace. He gives more. So what does God give to those who have trampled his grace? He gives more grace. What does God give? What does God extend to those who have cheapened his grace? He gives them more grace. You know, sometimes as parents, like, especially I do this, when my kids spill milk, I'm like, oh, I spilled the milk. Can I have more? No, you're getting water now. Milk's too expensive. You can have water. And we kind of project that onto the Father. We squandered his grace, and we think, oh, boy, here comes the law. He says, no, here's more grace. There's more grace to come. What does God have ready for those who have forgotten his grace? More grace. What does God use to woo back his unfaithful people? More grace. This is the reason why Jesus died. The grace of God appeared to save us. And now, as John 1 says, he has grace upon grace. He died for our functional atheism. He died for our spiritual adultery. And he gives us his righteousness. He hung on the cross in our place for our sins, giving us what we don't deserve and bundled into Christ as this complete package of grace and mercy, forgiveness, redemption, eternal life, grace upon grace. Friends, the gospel is not a one-time gift of grace. It is more grace and more grace. Other translations, maybe your Bible even says, verse 6, but he gives greater grace. Both are great translations. He gives us more in quantity, and he gives us greater. He gives us something that's surpassing in quality of all the sins in verses 1 through 5. You got quarrels and fights. There's a grace that's even greater than that. You're coveting. Your desires aren't met. He's got a grace that can triumph over your quarrels, that can triumph over your coveting. You're a functional atheist. He has a grace that can overcome and flip around your functional atheism. You're a spiritual adulterer. He has a grace that is greater than all of your spiritual adultery. He gives you covenant faithfulness in Christ. So even for unbelievers, non-Christians, he's ready to give you grace. He's ready to give it to you. In Christ, all you must do is repent and believe, and he's got more grace for you. Even for believers, disobedient believers this morning, he has grace to give you. There's more grace. And even for obedient, faithful, hearing and doing of the word Christians, there is more grace for you. We are all on the same track, all on the same path, and our, all of our greatest needs this morning is to receive more grace from God. Even outside of this passage, you can think about this is true of the whole Christian life, that sickness you're facing. There's more grace for you. For the depression you are in, there's more grace for you. For the temptations, the trials, and the doubts, 
the uncertainties and the parenting challenges and the life adjustments. Grace is on the way. But listen, beloved, there is, there is a certain pathway that grace has made available to you. Whether you're living in functional atheism or you're facing a new challenge in parenting, we, are, we join in the same path to receive this grace. There, there's only one way to receive it. Look at the second half of verse 6. He gives more grace. Therefore, since that's true, you must know that the second part is true. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives, so it links us back up at the beginning of verse 6, he gives grace to the humble. Humility is the path that we must go to receive his grace. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God does not dole out grace to the proud. He opposes the proud. To be proud is to bow up against God and his ways and his word and his people. In the Hebrew, this word, when he opposes the proud, it means that he is in battle array against the proud. That's not how you want to interact with the almighty God. But he gives grace to the humble. So the seeming important question here is, how do I humble myself now? How do I become humble? What do I do? I want his grace. I don't want to continue in verses 1 through 5. I don't want to continue in quarrels and fights. I don't want to continue in atheism and in adultery and in coveting. So what do I do? How do I humble myself? Here's what we do. This, this is the breakthrough that I talked about earlier. This is it. This is how we surge forward together in God's grace. Verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. This is where it all begins. This is, the, this is the beginning of the Christian life. And this is the continual rhythm on repeat in the Christian life. Submit ourselves to God. This is always first. This is what Adam and Eve did not do. They didn't submit to God. They did not submit to his word. But this is what Jesus did. The first Adam failed, second Adam succeeded. And so now, this is what we can do by the power of Christ within us. This is not beyond us now because Christ is now in us. We can properly, with the gospel of grace, we can now submit ourselves to God. There are places in our lives where we aren't submitting to him. Thoughts, attitudes, actions, desires. And if you're aware of them, now we quietly contritely, for he would not despise a contrite heart. And we bring it to him. I'm submitting to you, Lord. You are the Lord. I, I, I am your child. I am your servant. I submit myself to you and to your word. Submitting to the Lord is an eagerness to follow him in faith. It's a submission to his way and to his, his word. And as soon as you do that, I mean, even now, as you even think about in the back of your mind, you're bringing a temptation, a desire, a want, and you're thinking about it, I must submit this to the Lord, and you're probably already feeling resistance. If I do this, I might lose this. If I do this, I'm, this might compromise this. I might sacrifice my reputation. I might lose this contract. I might... I might lose this relationship. Is it worth it? 
This is why the next sentence is where it is in the Bible. As soon as you get serious about submitting to the Lord, this is why this next sentence is there. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Because as soon as you get serious about, I'm submitting to the Lord, I'm going to follow him, you know now the devil is in battle array against you. He does not want you to submit yourself to the Lord. This is what Adam and Eve did not do. They did not resist the devil. But this is what Jesus did. The devil offered him up about three sentences, and he left. He's a very impatient devil. Resist the devil and look at the promise. He will flee. Don't give in to him. Refuse his counsel. Refuse his temptations. He's weak. He's just waiting to have the heel of Christ grind him to a pulp. He'll run away. He'll go find someone else to bother. Him and his demons are very impatient. Brothers and sisters, be more patient than the devil. Resist him and he will flee. This little section in James, one of my favorite sections in in the whole Bible because I think it's just practical, daily Christianity and discipleship. Submit to God, resist the devil, and now what? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is the Christian life. Submit to God, resist the devil, draw near to God. This is what Adam and Eve did not do. They did not draw near to God. And even in God's great mercy, he drew near to them. They hid from God. But this is what Jesus did. He drew near to the Father. And now this is what we can do with the power of Christ at work in us. Submit to God, resist the devil, and draw near to God. This is how we surge forward together in God's grace. This is a sweet promise and blessing. Go to God. Ask, seek, knock. And like the prodigal son's father, the father is already halfway there. He's already on the road to you. Now listen, it's easy to read this and think and and feel kind of a, so what? I got to like meet God halfway and then he comes. Like I got to move first and then God will come draw near to God and then God will draw near to me. This seems unfair. Like God wants me to prove it. This is not what this means. This is not like Sadie Hawkins where you go to God and God, we come to me. He's like, all right, sure, yeah. This is not how this works. The very fact that this verse exists is proof that God is already saying, come to me. Remember, the Bible, this is not just James writing some good advice for us. This is almighty God communicating to you and me, and he's inviting us saying, draw near to me. Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Draw near to me, I will not ignore you. Draw near to me, I will not cold shoulder you. But I've been coveting. I've been a spiritual adulterer. I know. Draw near to me. I will draw near to you. But I've been so faithless. I've been so prayerless. I know. Draw near to me. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wings. Tomball, Tomball, how I wish you knew the things that made for peace. Draw near to me. And I will draw near to you. We misunderstand the gospel if we hide from God when we sin instead of going to God. The grace of God isn't a slammed door against sinners. It's a blood-soaked, torn veil in the blood of Christ. Draw near in prayer. Draw near. Someone's like, how do I draw near? Draw near in prayer. 
Draw near in the word. Draw near in worship. Draw near in affections. I love the way that Matt Chandler talks about just the simplicity of growing in Christ. Keep doing the things that stir your affections for him and then stop doing the things that draw you away. Being a disciple of Jesus is just what it means to draw near to him, to hear him, to meet with him, to abide with him. That's why Jesus says in the Gospel of John, abide with me and I will abide with you. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. It is a sweet and wonderful thing to abide with Jesus, to sense him and to feel his love and his glory and his presence. And I hope every single one of you will draw near to him in faith. And not only will you cranially acknowledge and theologically know I can draw near to God, but that you will experientially know that he has drawn near to you and you have felt his love and you felt his grace and you've, you've been like Thomas as you felt in faith the nail marks on his hands and you can cry out to my Lord and my God. I, I can't preach well enough for you to feel it. Only the Spirit can grant it to you. That's my great burden for all of us, that we would just move beyond mere facts and faith and that we would be done knowing, experiencing to live is Christ, that we may know him and the power of his resurrection. But maybe you've tried all that. Maybe you open your Bible and you try and you try to pray and just meh happens. You do it. You've tried it for a week. You check the boxes. Okay, I did that. I did this. I'm not sensing him drawing near to me. I even tried to sing this morning and I not feeling anything. This is why verses 8 and 9 follow this little section. Verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Next, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Maybe repentance is in order. Maybe confession of sin and repentance of sin. Cleanse your hands and, and purify your hearts. What sins need to go? Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Cost of Discipleship, says that sometimes people will come to us and they'll say things like, man, I, I don't know. I just don't know if God's real anymore. And I, I'm just kind of doubting. And he just says, what sin do you need to repent of? Because we, we'd rather cling to our sin. We'd rather cling to our sin and just jettison our faith instead of repenting and submitting ourselves to God. And Tim Keller in an article this past week said the same thing. He says, I meet college students and they come up and tell me, man, I, you know, I, I'm sitting in this philosophy class and I talk to this guy and I just, I'm just wondering, is the Bible true? Can we trust it? Is, is God real? You know, I think I need to become an atheist. I just don't think. And he says, he just asked them, who are you sleeping with? He's like, nine times out of 10. It's a sin that they're holding on to so dear. They'd rather, rather than repent of the sin, they'll just rationalize God away. Because the things of the world crowd and choke the word, as Jesus said. So maybe sins need to be repented of. Don't just clean the outside of the cup. This is what Jesus says. This is what James is saying. Cleanse your hands and your hearts. Don't just clean the outside of the cup. First wash the inside of the cup, and then the outside will become clean. Don't be like a whitewashed tomb. Don't just stop the action. Confess your sins Confess the love of the world. Get rid of the double-mindedness. Get serious about your sin. 
Submit yourself to the Lord. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Confess your sins. This is what verses 9 and 10 are about. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What does this mean? It means get serious about your sin. Grieve over it. If we are glib towards sin, we don't understand the gospel. There should be a proper mourning over our sin. Of course, this isn't commanding us to be joyless. This is a command to even greater joy. He just said in chapter 1, count it all joy. Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. So what is James saying? This means that when you mourn over your sin, it's a rejoicing in the Lord. To hate your sin is a sign of joy in the Lord. Listen, if, if you can yell at your spouse and go on and laugh with your buddies, wash your hands, you sinner. Cleanse your heart, you double-minded. If you can be a jerk towards your kids and you can go on and watch Netflix and it not bother you, wash your hands, you sinner. Cleanse your mind, cleanse your heart, you double-minded. Submit yourselves to the Lord. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Repent of sin. Verses seven through nine, this is an outworking of the grace from verse six. If you want to get more grace, this is the sonic boom, the ripple effect of when that grace touches down. You go the route of humility. You end up submitting yourself to God. You will resist the devil. You will draw near to God and you will repent of sins. You cannot receive grace and then just go on the same. Humble yourselves before the Lord. That's verse 10. Humble yourselves and he will exalt you. So what causes quarrels and fights in our relationships? Atheism, spiritual adultery, and forgetting the grace of God. That's why verses 11 through 12 circle back to our interactions. James is finishing this little unit for us. Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And verse 12, I love, is basically saying, and who do you think you are? There is only one lawgiver and judge, and it ain't you. He who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? So we don't judge each other in terms of salvation. We aren't each other's law. We, we aren't held accountable to each other's whims, preferences, and opinions. We are not each other's Holy Spirit. We are not each other's Bible. We encourage one another from the Word of God. That's as far as we go. We encourage one another according to his counsel. We don't judge each other's salvation. We don't bring up our own judgments, just the word of God. We can give our opinion and counsel, and if people don't take it, it's fine. When you give someone counsel and they don't take it, I can guarantee you Almighty God's not going to bring up that moment in Judgment Day. You didn't listen to Jeff in 2016. I'm holding that against you. No, his word alone. So to hold people to our word on top of God's word, James saying, you're judging the law. You're not even judging them. You're now judging the Bible, saying the Bible isn't good enough. The Bible's weak. Let me help it. 
You aren't the lawgiver. You aren't the judge. The judge's chair and robe haven't been given to you. So humble yourself. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Confess your sins. The church that stays low together, humbling themselves, resisting the devil, and drawing near to God, we will surge forward together in his grace. Just like when a fight breaks out in your house and you ask, what happened? Maybe when revival happens at Redeemer, we can ask, what happened? And we can say, we submitted to the Lord and he drew near to us. Let's pray together.